Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Well, welcome, everybody. Today, the FCC uh, had an open meeting with a number of items that are quite important. And I am joined uh, by my colleagues, Chip Yorgaitis, Hank Kelly, uh, Winifred Brantle, Mike Dover, and Belen Crisp. And we're here to talk about them, give you some brief insights. We have not seen the text of these orders. We've seen the drafts, but not the final text. And so we're going to give you, as I say, a few insights. And uh, you're welcome to get with any of us to discuss these things further. So I'm going to kick it off with quite a consequential item, uh, preventing digital discrimination. And this is a notice of inquiry. And one, it's the law. It's part of the Infrastructure Act, and it's mandated that the FCC come up with rules by November 2023. So this is going to happen. Secondly, it was adopted by a bipartisan group of senators. So this is no partisan action. There's real interest in both sides of the aisle on this issue of Uh, equitable access, and preventing digital discrimination. Third point, there's not a lot of history here in the uh, legislative record. Uh, There's no committee report. There's no discussion on the floor. So this law, which is all of about one page in length, is quite broad and it just sort of is being tossed over to the FCC to grapple with. Uh, Next point, the FCC understands it's got an enormous task. If you heard any of the commissioners today, they're just trying to wrap their arms around these big issues of what is equal access? What is um, digital discrimination? How do we deal with these factors of Uh, technical and economic feasibility. Now, in the law already, and for many years, it goes back to the Cable Act of 1984, there was a redlining provision there. It's never really been invoked against the cable industry in all of that time. So now we come up to this issue where everybody is, I say, trying to get their arms around it. Uh, As Commissioner Stark said today, in other areas of discrimination, there's a history, there's a pattern, there's context. We sort of know what we're dealing with. Here they don't. And so they're really starting from scratch. Uh, As I said at the beginning, this is a notice of inquiry. It's going to give lots of time for comments, reply comments. They're looking for data. They're looking for insights on how do they deal with complaints because the law requires 
the commission to receive complaints from any member of the public. What does that mean? And so there's a lot still to come. The commission will use the notice of inquiry to shape uh, the NPRM, the notice of proposed rulemaking, which I suspect will come out around the first of the year. And then the FCC will have comment cycle on that. As I said, ready to adopt something by the deadline of November, 2023. So this is a high stakes proceeding uh, because if you're a provider out there, uh, you could be charged with violating the law. And so you need to pay attention. If you're a consumer, here's an opportunity to be able to say, I'm not getting service because of something providers are doing. Uh, and there are other stakeholders, groups involved on all sides. So this is one to stay tuned for, and uh, we're gonna be watching. So with that, let me hand it off to my colleague, Chip Yurgaitis, who's gonna talk about another major item, one on poll replacements. Chip? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, I had one question for you, though. That's okay, uh, go ahead. In, ter in terms of the law uh, regarding uh, the digital discrimination, um, who, who enforces that? In other words, what's the FCC's role relative to the courts or uh, other, other bodies? Is it, is it unique to the FCC or a, a, a multi-body, government body effort? Well, in fact, great question, Chip, because the law says the commission and the attorney general shall ensure that federal policies promote equal access. Um, in addition, the FCC is supposed to develop model policies and practices that states and local governments can adopt. So uh, this could spread far and wide in terms of uh, regulations and oversight. Great. Um, well, uh, as Tom said, I'm, I'm going to talk about another one of the items that was taken up today at the open meeting. And uh, unlike uh, the one Tom discussed, which comes from a set of provisions in the recent Infrastructure Act, um, this has to do with Section 224, which uh, governs uh, uh, poll access for purposes of providing telecom service and cable services. And it's something that the uh, FCC has been uh, slowly uh, growing with over the past several decades. Um, and this is uh, sort of the latest chapter in a long saga. And that has to do with uh, poll replacement. Uh, and, and poll replacements come up when uh, a new attacher uh, is seeking to attach to polls owned by a utility, an electric utility, or a, uh, an incumbent uh, telephone carrier, and uh, there's insufficient capacity on the poll. And the only way to uh, accommodate that new attacher uh, is to replace the polls. And uh, for, for many utilities, uh, they saw this as an opportunity to uh, recover the entire cost of the new poll to accommodate the attachment. And um, last year, the, the, the uh, Wireline Bureau, they issued a declaratory ruling 
that when an attachment request is not the sole cause of a pole replacement, then the new attacher can't be allocated the full cost of that replacement. Um, and, and, and again, that came up because uh, many utilities were doing just that. Uh, and they were doing just that when poles were scheduled to be replaced, when they were so-called red tagged, uh, or when there was a violation that uh, was of a nature that required the attachment, uh, or excuse me, the, the pole to be replaced, but it hadn't been done yet. So they were, uh, you know, uh, waiting, uh, some, some uh, parties believe, they were waiting for these new attachments to, to be the opportunity to have the uh, poles replaced uh, and the cost of that subsidized by these new attachers. So uh, what the commission's doing now is taking the next step. It's addressing a lot of the issues that were left open by the declaratory ruling, which was, uh, you know, welcomed uh, by uh, telecom companies and cable operators alike. But um, they, there are a lot of questions that were left unanswered. And, and that's what this notice of proposed rulemaking that was adopted today is designed to uh, tackle. And so they're going to look at questions like, when is a pole replacement necessitated solely by the new attachment? Uh, the commission didn't tackle that. They did talk about red tagged poles, as I mentioned, but there's no real definition. Uh, there's no bright line definition of what a red tagged pole is. So that's another issue that's going to be addressed today uh, or addressed by the new uh, rulemaking adopted today. Um, they're also going to look at, you know, when does a pre-existing violation uh, also uh, count as a contributing cause for the need to replace a pole? Uh, and so, uh, you know, lots of issues need to be tackled to create more certainty. And the, the broader context here is important. And that was clear from all of the comments from the commissioners today. And that this NPRM comes in the context of the, the Infrastructure Act, where you have, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars uh, being given to NTIA to help build out broadband infrastructure. It, it comes in the context of uh, closing the digital divide, uh, particularly in unserved areas where, where polls are extremely important. Um, and also the rollout for 5G wireless. Um, so one of the things that this uh, NPRM will do, in addition to creating an opportunity to create a record with regard to uh, sort of the technical issues I mentioned earlier about you know, when, when is a replacement uh, solely caused by the new attachment. Uh, the commission's also going to be looking at how to, um, you know, what, what sort of measures can help uh, avoid pole attachment disputes or, or minimize the need for those. How can they resolve pole attachment uh, disputes more quickly, they're, they're, you know, there's talk about possibly using the accelerated docket to do that. So, you know, for any uh, cable companies or telephone companies out there that are trying to uh, deploy in unserved areas, deploy in new markets, uh, there, there's a lot here that will be of interest uh, to them uh, because the cost of pole replacement can be quite significant. Uh, you know, we've we've seen some of our clients uh, face uh, bills in some places where as many as 
10 or 20% of the poles need to be replaced. Um, there are also limits on this NPRM. Um, uh, in particular, Section 224 uh, does not apply to poles owned by uh, municipalities or uh, cooperative uh, companies and associations. So whatever the commission does here will not directly affect uh, poll replacements regarding those polls. In addition, Section 224 is limited to poll access by telecom carriers and cable operators. And so, for example, for a, few, a pure broadband play, uh, what the commission does here will not directly affect uh, the, uh, the ability of broadband providers uh, that, that offer broadband on a standalone basis uh, to get access to polls. Um, and then finally, Section 224 has another limitation, which is that the uh, states uh, individually can uh, give notice to the FCC that they regulate poll attachments within their state and, and they can do what's uh, come to be called uh, reverse preempt the FCC's jurisdiction. And in fact, there are more than 22 states today that uh, have reversed uh, preempted to the FCC. So again, what the FCC does here in this NPRM, as important as it is, uh, will not uh, directly impact uh, regulation in those 20 plus states, although some states uh, of course, may look to what the FCC did and uh, emulate that in their own regulations. Um, so it's it, it's an important proceeding. It has certain limits, uh, and and it and it will be followed closely as as a key element to the rollout of uh, the nation's broadband infrastructure, closing the digital divide and next generation wireless systems. So with that, I'll hand it over to Hank, who's going to talk about. Uh, a third item uh, addressed in the open meeting today regarding uh, rural um, health care. Thanks very much, Chip. Sure. So I'm, I've got kind of a feel good uh, report from today's open meeting. Um, today, the uh, as part of a continuing process, uh, the FCC had announced its its fourth group of <clears throat> approved uh, providers of connected care, uh, health care providers that um, are gonna get some additional funding for the pilot program that the FCC has set up to, to sort of study how connected care and, and USF funding um, for connected care can really help improve uh, rural healthcare needs, uh, needs of people that, that uh, live, live away from physicians and need broadband internet access and, and mobile devices and equipment and an infrastructure in place to uh, to receive uh, mobile healthcare and rural health care and and broadband healthcare, um, so today's today's action by the FCC uh, they awarded sixteen uh, providers or projects uh, with a total of twenty nine point seven million dollars uh, going to the connected care these connected care uh, healthcare providers. Um, I just kind of go back a little bit and describe a little bit about the connected care program. Uh, this was. Um, started back in 2020 with the FCC's uh, final rules, they identified that they would provide up to $100 million from existing USF funds um, over a three-year period to uh, study how uh, the USF funds can be better used to implement and, and, and ex uh, do a better job of, of uh, helping people 
in rural areas uh, engage in telehealth. Um, this was the, the, the fourth uh, funding of, of the projects uh, in, in the past. They've done about uh, 93 providers in this uh, with about $69 million worth of, of funding uh, for the care providers. And like I said, this was um, an additional uh, about, about $30 million for 16 new projects. Um, the, again, sort of the purpose of the Connected Care Program is to, uh, to fund um, uh, patient broadband internet access services, healthcare provider broadband data connections, uh, connected care information services, uh, network equipment that all need to be used for, uh, for telehealth and, and, and to improve connected care programs. Um, what's not eligible for funding under the, the pilot program are, are devices, so mobile devices, phones, and iPads, things of that nature. But if there's equipment that can be used to help improve the broadband connection, whether it be on the, the uh, uh, consumer or the patient side or on the provider side, all of those infrastructure needs uh, can be, can be uh, purchased and supplemented with, with the funding. Um, now, some of the healthcare providers that, that are eligible to receive uh, the funding include uh, community healthcare centers, um, local health healthcare departments or agencies, uh, mental health centers, uh, healthcare clinics, um, uh, maternity uh, maternity and, and veterans affairs, uh, people with uh, those those needs are, um, um, and, and those those types of providers that were offering those types of patients uh, connected healthcare. Were, were some of the ones that uh, received some of the some of the biggest uh, biggest funding opportunities. Um, in this round, uh, there were some pretty notable uh, contributions or, or funding opportunities. Uh, the there was a, a, a about about nine million dollars nine and a half million dollars to the Willis Knightney uh, Knighton Healthcare System in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, they've got about twelve thousand uh, patients. Um, that have high risk pregnancy, maternal health, uh, mental health uh, issues, opioid dependency, uh, infectious diseases, and and uh, the, uh, um, the they were one of the they were the, near as I could tell they were the largest recipient throughout the entire last several months when they when the FCC has been awarding these projects uh, the, the the largest recipient um, in this round again there was also um, a pilot. Uh, there was a, I'm sorry, a, a tribal council in in Alaska that received about 1.1 million dollars uh, for imaging, diagnostics, remote tech treatment, and other services for veterans and low-income patients with uh, high-risk pregnancy and infectious diseases as well. And then another um, recipient this time around was the Christiana uh, Care Health Services in in Newport, Delaware. They received about $3.2 million for their connected care programs. Um, in, in the past, there were, uh, uh, like I said, about 92 other recipients for about $70 million. And uh, some of the larger ones that, that received their funding in the, the, the last tranches of funding programs um, was the Catholic Charities. Uh, they received about $6 million for the work that they do. Uh, University of Virginia Healthcare System, 
received about four and a half million. And the Ochin uh, uh, healthcare system up in the Northwest uh, received about $5.8 million. So uh, these, these funds were spread out, spread across all kinds of different organizations. Uh, some larger numbers like the 9 million and the, and the ones that I've mentioned, but some other healthcare providers also received in the 300,000 or $400,000 range uh, for the services that they provided. The expectation is that uh, USAC is going to uh, monitor how the funds are used, uh, distribute uh, uh, data requests and, and get reports back from these healthcare providers about how they've used these funds and whether, whether these funds have helped improve connected care capabilities. And then uh, the FCC certainly will take that information back and find other ways to, to uh, develop the program a little bit more and, and uh, probably devote more USF funds in the future uh, towards these efforts. So I thought that was a, um, I kind of liked the, the outcome here. It's unlike the one that Chip and, Chip and Tom had mentioned, uh, those were sort of the beginning of of the FCC's investigations into those two issues. Uh, this one is at least on the tail end of who's getting the awards. Uh, there's still more studies to be done, but um, still kind of a feel good uh, result from the FCC. It's, it's nice to see the FCC using USF funds in, in what I think are appropriate ways. So that's, uh, that's the, the, the summary of that. One, one, other, one other item that uh, we can just mention is that the, the FCC did revoke the Section 214 license for Pacific Networks Corp and its wholly owned subsidiary ComNet. Um, uh, US, uh, this, this proceeding started about a year ago, um, kind of a follow-up to several recent FCC actions to uh, revoke the 214 licenses for other uh, China-based uh, carriers uh, like ComNet. Um, and uh, the FCC is going to ahead and revoke their, their license. Um, and it wasn't just that they were, uh, you know, a Chinese-based company. Uh, the FCC found that um, there was uh, some control by the Chinese government over, um, over the companies and the facilities. And there was an opportunity to uh, exploit and influence um, the services. Uh, and then also that the, the company... Uh, in responding to the commission, uh, the FCC felt that there was a lack of trustworthiness and reliability um, that made that company uh, no longer qualified to provide its 214, uh, to have a 214 license. You know, this raises certain interesting legal issues uh, that others should be aware of regarding um, sort of the FCC's reach. Yeah. what it can regulate and not regulate out there. And uh, people just should be aware in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the reach in terms of Title I peers and others examining that because they interconnect uh, around the world, including with uh, various Chinese entities. And so uh, it's important to think of that. Um, there are also issues here uh, that were raised particularly by China Telecom about private carriage, which is a federal concept, but it's a way of saying we don't need to be regulated by UFCC or get a 214 uh, because we are private carriers. So people just should need to be aware of those things. There's, in other words, more to come here. 
Commissioner Carr, uh, in his comments, uh, you know, raised those very points. And he, he said, you know, sh should the commission, you know, perhaps think about uh, regulating other carriers uh, who, I guess, you know, do have that 214 authority and how they might uh, interconnect with these uh, uh, Chinese companies uh, that uh, have seen their 214s revoked. So it's, uh, you know, it's an effort to uh, deal with the, the the limited scope of the 214 revocation in, in light of the broader scope of how carriers provide their services today. Well, thanks, Chip. Um, I should add there was one item also uh, that was on the agenda that got pulled uh, it was a restricted proceeding dealing with, uh, I believe, uh, broadcasters and retransmission consent. It was an adjudicatory proceeding, uh, and the commission came out with it a couple of days ago uh, where uh, they had ruled in the past that uh, a group of broadcast stations had violated their obligation to negotiate in good faith for retransmission consent agreements. Uh, with AT&T, uh, the broadcasters sought review, this time sought reconsideration, and in each instance, the FCC just slapped them down, is the best way to say it, uh, and said, no, you violated the good faith rules, uh, and you are liable for that. Uh, so for those of you who deal in the world of retransmission consent, this is a noteworthy decision. And with that, I think we've uh, gone through all the items on the uh, open meeting today. I don't know if my colleagues have anything else they'd like to add. No. Thank, nope. Thanks for uh, joining us today if you're listening this far into it. Well said, Chip. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Have a good day. See you all. Bye. Bye now. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.